Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Saptarishi Bandopadhyay, author of All is Well, Catastrophe and the Making of the Normal State, published this year by Oxford University Press. Dr. Bandopadhyay, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Andrew. Very nice to be here. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure, yeah. Um, So I am currently an assistant professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University in Toronto. Um, I'm originally from India, and... um, I moved to the U.S. about 16 years ago for grad school, and I spent uh, 15 years there and moved to Toronto around 2016 to, um, for, to start working at York. Um, this book is comes out of my dissertation at Harvard University. I, went, I have an SJD, which is an interdisciplinary doctorate from Harvard Law School. Um, and so the project began as, as the dissertation there, and I continued to work on it for a few years after graduating, and I started working at uh, teaching at Osgoode. Um, and over the course of uh, writing it, and even before, um, I've been involved largely informally, but almost routinely in um, both working with and sort of learning from people who do disaster management in India, in the Philippines, um, and in the borderlands between India, Pakistan, and China. And so both the book is informed both by time in university and sort of just research orientation in interest, but also... It comes out of um, certain experiential and political commitments that I developed and that I talk more about in the preface. Um, yeah, that, that, so that's how the book began. And um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so to kind of start with the, the big picture kind of uh, thesis of the book, uh, this is a, a book that's, as the subtitle says, about the making of the normal state. So could you tell us what is the, the normal state and when was it made? Sure. Um, so my intuition in writing this book was that um, 
the way people talked about disasters in contemporary literature is that disasters and their and sort of disaster management is seen as this international and sort of a global um, enterprise. Um, and we hear about experts in the Red Cross and, you know, states, whether they manage to survive disasters or they fail and there are, you know, there's military intervention, talk of food aid, et cetera, et cetera. And my, my, my instinct was that a lot of this stuff seemed to begin with the Cold War. Um, and I had the sense that people were paying far too much attention to um, sort of post-World War II, Cold War era discourses of disaster. And my sense was that there was more to be said about disasters outside of their management by international institutions and sort of international relations. Um, and I picked the 18th century because I thought that there was something, there was some kind of an intimate relationship between how we think about disasters and how we think about the authorities that manage them. And so the, the premise of the book is that when we say something is a disaster, it already assumes a form of management. And the goal of the book was to try and explore the historical, the distant historical relationship between um, disasters, which are seen as these abnormal appearances, and states, which are seen as the most normalizing default forms of authority in our world. And I wanted to study, this is not an origin tale, but I wanted to study the, the, the distant past explore this relationship in the distant past and to try and offer some sense of a history of the present to explain you know, how disasters are handled today, when states succeed in disaster management, why they fail, and who they, who they, who they ultimately serve. Um, and so my, my work in this book um, begins from the premise that both disasters and states have always needed to be justified, that neither of them can be expected, sort of accepted as ontologically um, sort of black boxes. And so I argue that there is no such thing as a disaster outside of rituals of legal, administrative, and scientific contestation through which these occurrences are morally distinguished from our everyday life experiences. Um, and the, the rituals of legal, administrative, and scientific contestation were essentially about groups of people, experts, leaders, um, rivals, through time within and between societies who were struggling to try and sort of impose hegemonic visions of what a disaster is, how we can get away from them, and who should be in charge of making that transition. So the book's theoretical construct or the theoretical um, argument underlying it is that these struggles were essentially um, political struggles to establish a normal or a perfectible relationship between nature and society. And that the belief has always been that, or at least since the 18th century, the belief has been that to the extent that we're able to approach or realize this ideal relationship that it is possible to develop societies that are invulnerable to disasters or normal um, both in terms of that there are no appearances but also in the sense that the authorities that manage them um, are these um, are ones that prioritize normalcy and have become default uh, sort of manifestations of political and scientific authority yeah um, and you mentioned the idea there of contestation, that this is not just, you know, one way of understanding disasters that gets kind of rolled out and, you know, reshapes society, but this 
all occurs through different rival you know, discourses and ideas about management that, you know, just the, the process of that um, contestation is what produces a lot of the effects that you're, you're talking about. Um, so I was wondering if you could get into that a little more about how these, these different ideas about disaster uh, are in, in conflict or in, in contestation with each other in uh, some of these cases that you look at. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so, the, so the, the the what I just ex- described was the theoretical construct behind it. So, the, the question that you're asking, I think, is um, comes about in the book's his, in, in the book's historical and contextual construct, which is that I decided to seek evidence for this theoretical claim about the perfectibility of uh, natural and social orders and the production of invulnerable societies in the 18th century. Um, And I argue that in the cases, the case studies in chapters three, four, and five, which look at the Marseille Plague of 1720, the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, and the Bengal famine of 1770, I use these to try and substantiate the claim that during the 18th century, the ideas, instincts, techniques, and practices that facilitated disaster management also produced the state. So there's something inherent um, there is something about um, the production and the conservation of catastrophes, as I call it, that is inherent in the art of normal rule, which I argue we see emerging in a really distinct form um, in the 18th century. Now, this is, of course, premised on the idea that, you know, starting in the 16th and 17th century in Europe, there is the move away from God. And so 18th century, whereas there is still a strong belief that in theodicy and the idea that you know God may have something to do with the production of disasters, there is increasingly a discernible shift away from it. And we find the eruption of states or what I describe as state-like authorities during this time. Um, and so my goal in looking at the case studies was to try and show how disaster management, which I define as the conservation of catastrophe and the, for, and the production of state-like power, how that erupts and how that sort of it develops in the flux between theodicy, natural rights, enlightenment ideals, and eventually colonial rule. And so the case studies are trying to offer deep contextual histories um, of how this process occurs. So one of the reasons why I looked at uh, the Marseille Plague was that I wanted to study um, sort of a transition from different orders of a modern state coming out of Europe and then transitioning into a colonial state, um, which I look at in Bengal. And so in the heart of Western Europe, in Chapter 3, I study the Marseille Plague of 1720. Uh, in Chapter 4, I study the, the move from a theocratic state in Portugal to a modern scientific state following the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. And I show how, whereas France was always seen as, you know, being in the heart of Western Europe politically, Portugal was very much at the political margins. And something happens in a shift, in a change in how disasters are managed around the Lisbon earthquake that that shifts Portugal out of this uh, sort of I, this European idea of Portugal being this backward place where, of course, disasters like this would happen where people can do nothing to prevent them. It moves it out of that realm and it creates this new kind of a, an idea of a modern scientific state. And then in chapter five, I look at Bengal, where I try to show how, you know, whereas in Marseille, it's a story of continuity. We see that 
um, even though this horrible, this tragic occurrence of a plague happens, I trace it from about 50 years before the plague begins to about a few years after the plague is formally said to have subsided. And I show that the ideas that sort of invited the plague in, the ideas, practices, bureaucratic and political economy uh, arrangements in society that sort of invited the plague in are reinforced. So whereas we often think that a great disaster is is something that overturns the social and political status quo, Marseille is actually a story of continuity. It shows how many of the ideas that invite disasters are so central to the formation of state authority that whether or not the state actually succeeds or fails in managing the disaster, those interests and ideas remain entrenched and only gain institutional and cultural um, credence through the course of the disaster. Lisbon, on the other hand, is much more of the of what people often think, which is that disasters are opportunities. They lead to a crash in existing status quo, and people are able to, you know, new forms of authority and new kinds of claims about knowledge and power are made in its aftermath. Um, and it's very much that kind of story. Um, but again, even there, when we say that Portugal moves out of a theocratic kingdom towards a modern state, we find this transition to be incomplete because we find in the dictator Pombal who rises to power in the aftermath of the the Lisbon quake, we find in his approach to state governance and state formation, strong sort of um, resemblances of the Austrian regime of brutality, even though their claims to, you know, enlightened political economy, it's very much imposed through authoritarian rule. Now, these things come together um, the, the, of course, this looks at disasters in Europe, but when we take when we move to looking at a disaster far away in a distant colony in Bengal, we find that it's also possible for a disaster and how we look at it and how we shape it, how we interpret it, to not just produce a state in the place and for the people who are affected, but it's possible for disaster management to inspire um, state formation in two places. So I use the Bengal famine in 1770 to show how the East India Company and initially and later on the British Parliament's handling of it um, and their interpretation of it, their explanation of why it occurred, whose fault it was and how it should be managed, etc. How all of these things produced not only not only inaugurated sort of colonial rule in India, but it also was a, a substantial part of Britain's um, sort of soliloquy, it's it's sort of monologue of its own moral righteousness, and it used this famine not to question its imperial practices, but rather as a reason to extend them, as a justification for them. Um, And so that's how I try to ground the theoretical claim that I mentioned about um, the balancing of the social perfection of the balance between social and natural orders, and I find in the 18th century, in these case studies, um, a good place for the historical construct to find evidence for uh, this kind of a theoretical claim. And my, my expectation, um, as I hope readers will see, is that, as I mentioned at the very beginning, my goal was to try and show how an analysis of disasters and their relationship to the state in the distant past can offer some kind of guidance, can offer some kind of... Uh, um, some notes, some kind of um, some kind of meaningful um, 
interpretation of how and why disasters and states interact and why states fail in the present. Um, and so that is largely left to chapter seven. Um, but where the book concludes, and I, I preface this here because where the book concludes is by saying that when we look at state failure in the present, when we look at things like sustainable development, when we talk about whether or not you know states are able to succeed, whether they have enough scientific knowledge or material resources, um, whether military use is really required in the aftermath of disasters, etc., we're essentially talking about the same kinds of issues and the same kinds of sort of conundrums, instincts, and practices and solutions to those conundrums that originated in this pivotal moment that I study in the 18th century. And my claim is that, you know, we don't know whether there's all this talk about whether or not states will survive, etc. We don't know whether states will survive as they are. We don't know whether there will be sort of larger regional accumulations of states or international authorities will rise in the future. Um, but we do know that one of the largest catastrophes looming over our present is climate change. And what I what I hope to show is that, you know, the conservation of this catastrophe of climate change, so questions like who caused climate change, who can fix it, these are really the shackle to the future of state formation in the way that in the book I show that the history of climate change is sort of tied to the history of the modern state. So what kinds of what kinds of you know revelations and and catastrophes will be spawned by climate change in the future? and what it will come to mean to us, and what kinds of normal authorities we will develop to deal with it in the future um, are both determined by the character of disaster management rather than by something that has to do with disasters on their own or states on their own. Um, so that's sort of the, that's the, that's the historical framework through which I try to substantiate the theoretical claim in the book. All right. Yeah, I'm definitely going to circle back to ask about some of that application to current events uh, a little later in the interview. Uh, but I also wanted to ask about how the perspective that you're putting forward in this book relates to some of the kind of typical ways of thinking about disasters among, you know, leaders and, and scholars and so forth. And, you know, you, you talk about the sort of external hazards way of thinking where, you know, disasters are, are these events uh, hitting us from, from outside, uh, causing disruption, and then also the vulnerability approach that a lot of scholars in disaster studies have, have put forward. And you kind of critique and, and distinguish your views from both of those. So I was wondering if you could talk a little more about, um, you know, how the, um, how the material that you talk about in your book relates to those sort of predominant perspectives on disasters. Sure. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so the, um, so as you've, as you've identified, you know, since the, over the course of the 20th century, there's there have been two significant schools of thought or approaches to explaining what a disaster is, um, and therefore what causes it, how we should address it, etc. Um, the external hazards view, or the objectivist view, which was popular since the, the 30s and the 40s, um, and to be fair, still remains very popular in mainstream official discourse, governmental discourse, um, uh, on how to, on what disasters are and how to handle them, is this idea that you know disasters are things that 
um, are visitations upon society from outside, but they're caused by objective hazards. So uh, whether it's a storm or whether it's nuclear war, it's something that can be objectively identified as a risk that um, then harms society and creates a dis- disruption and then variance and then um, sort of harms people, resources, property, economy, etc. This view you know, had, a, had a long run and, as I said, remains very much um, in power. And if you look at the way... Um, the way political leaders talk about disasters, the way many international institutions frame um, language of conventions, treaties, and sort of um, language around what disasters are and how to handle them, you can see reflections of this everywhere. Um, and in the starting in the 70s, sociologists and geographers um, in particular, but also anthropologists among others, started to offer a, a quite a radical view at that point, at that time, which was that not only were disasters not natural, in the sense that they could not, they should not, while hazards could be seen as natural disasters, were the result of, of natural hazards like storms or a virus interacting with societies that were not prepared for them. So this is where vulnerability theory comes about both in disaster studies and simultaneously in development studies as well. And the idea there was simply that the same storm hitting two different cities may have you know, dramatically different consequences. One may truly be described as a disaster, whereas another maybe nothing more than rainfall, which doesn't really get in the way of life. Whereas something might be a flood in one place, in somewhere else, it's just a reason for umbrellas and rain boots. Um, And the way that vulnerability theorists went about explaining this was by saying that there there is a relationship between how societies prepare for and are able to respond to these hazards, which has to do with their um, their development, their economic and social development, the existence of social services, infrastructure, poverty. These kinds of background conditions are what are, are the things that can give us a clue about how society might fare in the event that it is um, it does interface with some kind of a natural hazard. Um, so you know, COVID nineteen its impact even on a wealthy and developed state like the United States is a prime example of this. Um, and we can talk more about that in the present, but that was sort of the the kernel uh, of sort of truth that shifted thinking on disasters away from this natural hazards and objectivist view of um, how disasters are and how they should be managed. My reading of both of these is that, so I, you know, I very much... Um, I'm of the view that vulnerability thinking is the is the correct way to approach the problem, and um, that it it makes important shifts and it makes important socially valuable shifts beyond the natural hazards approach. Um, and I think more and more of that should be incorporated into the language of, of official documents, of planning rituals, of how politicians and everyday people think about disasters, um, because. One of the things that COVID-19 revealed was, and this has been a, a, a long seen by students and observers of disasters, that disasters reveal the pre-existing conditions uh, that we don't notice, that we accept as part of normal society. So homelessness or um, is seen as a normal part of society that people just walk past. However, when something like COVID-19 happens or when it's an extremely bitter winter, we realize that there are mass casualties and it shows that 
these are people who were who exist in society all the time and are ignored and forgotten and they're very much part of how normal society is governed and yet the interaction of this status quo with something like a virus or with something like excessively cold weather um, tells us about what we've really been missing and how vulnerable society really is. Now, of course, whether or not societies choose to care about people, marginalized populations, indigenous groups, etc., who are in these vulnerable populations is a completely different question, which is why I try to argue that when I say you know, disaster management is what a disaster is can't be understood outside of rituals of legal, administrative, scientific struggle and contestation. This struggle is to try and, you know, distinguish morally something that we call a disaster from the things that we call normal everyday life. And it's the power to define disasters in that way and to sort of impress that, um, to impose that interpretation of disasters onto the public imagination that, that, makes the difference between who gets to stay in power, whose authority is contested, who people believe, who is an expert, and so on. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Okay, so I want to pick up on the mention that you had about the moral element of these discourses, because I think that's a, an important thing that comes through in your book, that these explanations of kind of what is disaster, how should it be managed, aren't just like a, a scientific or quasi-scientific explanation of what happens, but they also have this moral dimension uh, to them. So could you talk a bit about why that moral dimension is important? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so as as you know, uh, whenever we whenever we talk about disasters, whether you know dinner table conversations or in the news media, etc., there are various orders of claims being made. There are scientific claims, there are bureaucratic claims, there's political rhetoric, there's public sort of cultural discourse about it. There are lawsuits and people suing for insurance and saying, "Here's why I'm not to blame." So there's all kinds of discourses, technical discourses, and sort of popular casual commonplace discourses that and all of these have are part of an underlying um, sort of moral network of questions and and claims about what a disaster is who it happened to whether it deserved it, whether they deserved it whether it was their fault why it happened to them why not someone else so for instance there's common questions about how you know disaster risk is disproportionately borne by people of color or people um, or by women and children or by um, people in, in other countries or what I describe as second and third world countries within the first. So my claim in the book is that by studying these sort of scientific, legal, administrative contestations, we see that what we regard as legal claims, scientific claims, sort of knowledge claims are 
are in fact telling moral stories. They're ways in which people in authority and experts and leaders and people who are struggling for power and trying to define what the disaster is are always trying to define it in terms of um, some kind of a moral story, some kind of a moral explanation of who the heroes are, who deserved what. And this is particularly important when we think about it in terms of the vulnerability approach to disasters, because when we say that, you know, why did this happen in this society? Why did a storm affect the society, X society, and not Y society in the same way? It immediately raises the question, did people in X society deserve this? Or who among those people may have put themselves in harm's way? So there are always determinations being made by, by experts and by everyday, uh, everyday folk when we discuss disasters that about moral judgments are being made. And these moral judgments are in fact woven into the science bureaucracy and legal codes and um, you know, lawsuits, etc., and so they get completely unnoticed. But one of the things that I try to show is that when we see this as being about, when we understand disasters as not being about events or not being simply things that are real and happen in the world, but that they also have an interpretive element to them, we're immediately able to see that the power to control that, imagi- that, that interpretation, the power to shape the public imagination, brings with it uh, a sort of moral aggregate authority. It brings with it a sense of virtue. And therefore, whether or not someone is trusted depends on how they explain the disaster, how they explain why something happened, whose fault it is. And so there are moral questions underlying almost all aspects of whether or not a disaster occurred to the right people. That is, whether it's fair that people who put themselves in harm's way were harmed and whether or not the state should have done something differently or people in power failed to do something differently. So even questions about what scientists should or should not have known are questions that are that are not just about scientific credibility, but about the ability to be able to trust when some when people in power are telling you something and you think whether it's true or whether you think they are justified in making the claims and the assumptions and the interpretations there are. And everyone has a story about a disaster. Everyone has a take on a disaster. But what I try to show is that there's a there's a structure, there's a historical and a political and an interpretive structure to these moral stories that unfortunately are lost when we see disasters purely as things that are scientific or legal or being handled through policy and propaganda. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that actually provides a nice segue into the kind of application uh questions you know what can we learn from this uh book that's relevant to some of the catastrophes we're facing today you talked a little bit about climate change earlier and i'm sure a lot of readers are going to be thinking about covid19 especially in the chapter about the the plague in marseille so yeah what what can we learn about our present day catastrophes from this book so um so the first thing is that a large part of the thinking on disasters today is, um, you know, there's a there's been a big push in the last in over the last decade or so to try and normalize and make sort of general public understanding of the idea that there's no such thing as a natural disaster, right? That that following this vulnerability theory idea that disasters are in fact have political causes behind them. So the idea that disasters are political, that they're not natural, that these kinds of things are, these ideas are largely in the air. 
And COVID-19 is, a, is a, as I explained briefly, is a, is a great example of this, is that whether or not we consider the virus to be natural, the responses that governments have had and the way their people have suffered were based on political choices made long before the virus came ashore in the, in the US or in India or in Canada or anywhere else. So there's a, a long-term political and historical element to this. And the same thing, of course, can be transposed onto the debate about climate change. Um, the question about what we can learn, therefore, is that there is a, um, it's not that disasters are just political. So that's to say that it's not just that it's random politics or real politics or something like that, but that there are historical narratives that are at play. And a historical examination of the process of disaster management, rather than by looking simply at the event of the disaster or at asking questions about whether or not we should trust the state or whether the state passed or failed some test, but rather looking at the work of disaster management, understanding the historical and theoretical and sort of moral claims made through the work and the expertise of, of disaster management reveals underlying legal and political legal structures and political economies that smuggle unspoken costs of modernity inside you know, rational, scientific, technical uh, representations of how we should understand past catastrophes, how we should feel about future risks. So the book is a way of trying to explain that when a disaster occurs, so for instance, right now, and I'm not going to talk about Ukraine as a, as a disaster in the sense that I study in this book, but when we, if when someone in Canada or in the US hears about you know, an earthquake that happened somewhere far away, there are these claims about well, it happens in those parts of the world, or that kind of thing doesn't happen here. Or when it when COVID-19 happened, there was all the discourse about, you know, are we a third world country? How could this possibly happen here? These kinds of these kinds of claims, these kinds of sort of shock and awe responses are they're not surprising. They speak to a long history of how we've understood where disasters occur, what they are, and how they should be handled. They're also based on long-term ideas about who they happen to and why and when they happen. One of the things that the book tries to do very differently by looking at the 18th century and then trying to pull out some of these um, some of these some of these ideas and arguments about the relationship between states and disasters is that you know most of the time we look at a disaster and we say, okay, what is the disaster? Why did it happen? Who could have helped it? I try to argue and I try to encourage readers to think about it from the opposite point of view, which is that the I try to argue that the question, obvious questions like what is climate change? Why is this a disaster? Who did it affect? When did it start? Who caused it? These kinds of seemingly obvious questions about the nature of states and the causes of disasters have long been interpreted by and determined by the imperatives and character of the work of disaster management. So Talking about disasters in and of themselves, thinking about states and whether they failed or succeeded in and of themselves, sees these two things as separate. And there's this, there's a there's a complacence that you know states are somehow fundamentally designed to stand in opposition to disasters and to prevent them. Um, and that's not at all clear to me, uh, both in my historical research and in just in working in the field and speaking to practice, that's never been clear to me that that kind of a complacence is, uh, or that kind of a, of a, of a 
belief is justified. It's comforting, but I don't think it's justified. And so the book tries to overcome and try to show how these ideas, these cultural responses, these assumptions about whether or not we trust an authority, why we trust an authority, what the disaster is, why is it that we see these the, the work of the, the normal management of the state and the occurrence of a disaster as two completely separate things, um, it tries to sort of do away with that deep, right, that, that deep sort of ravine between these two things and tries to show that they're actually the same thing. How we live our lives normally and how we no, do normal governance is the reason that we have particular kinds of disasters. Um, and the other, the other sort of, there's a there's a hubris underlying the way states and, and political and scientific authorities go about managing disasters, which is that there's this belief that we can actually succeed in doing this work of disaster management and protecting people without confronting the degree to which the motivations of states, without the motivations of experts, and I don't just mean individuals, but I mean institutionally and culturally, the organizational structure of international institutions of expertise and of the idea of where expertise comes from, who has the right knowledge, etc., and also visions of a better future. What a vision, what a better future would look like, who deserves it, what they have to do in order to get there. These kinds of questions, these kinds of pursuits depend on producing and inequitably distributing the costs of catastrophe. That is, the that is, we can't look to salvation as something that is or the thing or the ways we're told we might be able to be saved from disasters, we can't look at these as independent of the people who are telling us and the methods by which we're understanding what is safety, what is risky. Um, and so the goal of the book is to try to say that when you read about newspaper, when you read about disasters today, when you hear politicians speak, when you when someone says, should we believe authorities about whether or not vaccines can really save us, it's important to understand that the narratives that you're hearing are not coming out of the blue. They're not. Uh, they're not new. They're not suddenly off the moment. That is, these are not the kinds of things that have ever happened before. And this is where, in particular, I think the book leads into conversations about climate change. I don't spend a whole lot of time on it, but it leads in the direction of saying that this is a way in which climate change should also be understood, because increasingly, you know, research has shown the sort of anthropogenic roots of climate change, right? So this idea that climate change is natural, et cetera, has long been sort of is, is being dismantled, even though there's a lot of misinformation about it. And so the question becomes, how then should we understand it? How should we understand who's responsible for it? How should we understand when disasters occur, when there are refugee flows? Um, how should we understand what to do with these people and who's responsible for their future? And the book tries to argue that you cannot understand the present and you cannot expect the future um, to work out. Uh, you, you can't really have any expectations of how the future will work out without understanding this intrinsic and historically deep relationship between how modern states have emerged to look the way they have and how our conceptions of disasters have sort of morphed and evolved to look the way they do. Um, yeah. Okay. I think we've given our listeners plenty to get them interested in picking up this book. So to wrap up our interview, we always like to ask what you're working on next. What kind of projects do you have going now that this book is out? Yeah, now that the book is finally out, um, 
so uh, as I said, the, this book focuses largely on the 18th century, and um, my my next project looks at um, <clears throat> focuses largely on the on the 19th and 20th, and um, it tries to study the um, historical relationship between narratives of uh, law and policy narratives of war and armed conflict, in law, environmental degradation and human displacement. And it tries to show that it, it basically starts on the question of why is it that we're unable to understand uh, what to do with environmental refugees and why is it that we don't think political actors or um, states or the history of political power is responsible for the production of environmental refugees. And so it tries to offer overlapping historical narratives of the production of law and policy with respect to the laws of war and humanitarianism of environmental law and environmental protection and climate change and of human displacement and forced migration between roughly um, 1850 and the present. Um, so this is, again, a, a long-term project. I'm in the very early stages of it, but um, what I'm hoping it'll do is it'll try to expand some of the ideas that I've started developing in this book, which there was no room for talking about the 19th century, um, and to try to expand this way of thinking about how nature and politics are distinguished um, in the creation of law and scientific governance. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds really interesting. Definitely looking forward to seeing what you publish from that uh, project. Thanks very much. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Um, and I hope uh, the book is of some use to people. Yeah. All right, you just heard a conversation with Saptarishi Bandapadya, author of All is Well, Catastrophe and the Making of the Normal State, published this year by Oxford University Press. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.